G'day folks, welcome to episode 85 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week we've got a special interview between uh, Joe McManus, the director of the Ubuntu security team, and uh, Dr. Levi Perigo from the University of Colorado talking uh, software-defined networking and network function virtualization, and I guess how security relates to that and I guess security implications of some of that sort of workflows. Uh, so that's coming up a bit later, but first up we'll do our usual roundup of vulnerability fixes for the supported Ubuntu releases for the past week. So this week there were 37 unique CVEs that were addressed by the team. First up, we had an update for WebKit GTK. Uh, this was for Ubuntu releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support. Uh, there were six different uh, vulnerabilities that were fixed here, and these were our usual sorts of things that we do see in these um, web engine updates, whether it's for WebKit GTK or Firefox or Chromium. They all have roughly the same thing, where you know if you visit a malicious website, uh, the attacker then could you know cause things like cross-site scripting attacks, or you know denial of service to you, or potentially even a remote code execution uh, within the browser. So yeah, uh, those sorts of things were fixed for WebKit GTK. Then we had an update for GhostScript. Uh, this was one CVE that was fixed for GhostScript in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. Now, GhostScript was once a popular package in this podcast. We seem to used to talk about it every uh, every few weeks, really. Uh, but that's quietened down in the last six months. In fact, the last time I talked about it, I think was back in episode uh, about 55. So it's been quite a while since we have featured GhostScript. Uh, back in the past, it used to be lots of different uh, escape lots of different vulnerabilities that would allow you to escape from the uh, sandbox that GhostScript implements uh, around PostScript. Uh, in this case, uh, this wasn't so much uh, sort of escaping the sandbox, but abusing uh, the R search operator within PostScript. You could use this to then cause an integer overflow, then you'd be able to write outside of you know, the bounds of memory and potentially get code execution as a result. And the idea with PostScript, obviously, is that you know it is a, a Turing complete language, so you can you know, access a local file system or essentially do code execution however you like. Uh, so yeah, but that was fixed for GhostScript in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. Then we had an update for Squid, four different CVEs that were fixed for uh, Ubuntu releases 16.04 and 18.04 long-term support. Um, these were all discovered by a couple of different researchers, uh, two of them by Jericho One and uh, the other two by Jericho One and Christopher Danielson. Uh, in this case, there was incorrect cache handling in Squid uh, that could then allow an attacker to possibly perform cache injection attacks. There was also uh, incorrect handling of URNs or URLs. Uh, these could then allow an attacker to possibly bypass uh, access checks or rule checks. And finally, there was a failure to uh, properly validate input that would then allow you to crash or cause it and cause a denial of service to uh, Squid as well as an attacker. Uh, we had an update as well for SQLite for our, our 14.04 extended security maintenance uh, customers and users. Uh, six different CVEs were covered for that. I actually talked about this update for our uh, sort of standard support releases back in episode 66. Uh, so if you want uh, more details on that, yeah, go check out episode 66. Uh, we had an update as well for libssh for uh, ubuntu releases 16.04 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support uh, there was a single cv that was fixed here uh, it was essentially just uh, that a particular function uh, ssh buffer allocate could return a, a null pointer that wasn't checked for that would then get you know acted on as though it was actually a pointer to a buffer and you'd get a null pointer to your reference and therefore a crash as a result um, it should be noted that uh, the failure condition for this to return null would have been having to have low memory or something like that so unlikely to be triggered but yeah that was fixed for libssh 
We also had an update for Tomcat in Ubuntu 16.04 long-term support. Uh, in this case, uh, the most interesting one of these vulnerabilities was an infinite loop that could be triggered if you sent a WebSocket frame uh, with an invalid payload length. Uh, this would then spin, you know, trying to processing that. Uh, you would then possibly be out of denial of service, the Tomcat instance, if you sent multiple uh, instances of this sort of request. Next up, we had an update for Appport. So uh, I haven't talked about Appport for a while, but this is an Ubuntu-specific package uh, that's used for uh, handling crash reports in Ubuntu packages. So the idea that uh, the kernel has this sort of crash handling facility that um, a user space application, in this case, Appport, can hook into to be notified when uh, an application does crash. Appport then goes and collects a bunch of logs and other useful pieces of information and repairs those into a uh, crash dump report. And that then gets uploaded to uh, the error reporting server by another component called Whoopsie, which I will talk about in a minute. Uh, so there were some vulnerabilities in Appport that were fixed for Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support. Uh, two of these were discovered by Ryo Toshiga. Uh, the first of these uh, noticed that uh, Appport would fail to correctly drop privileges when invoking GDBus. So this is uh, a binary uh, that you can use to talk to the DBus um, daemon. Uh, and in this case, we were using it to check if the user was closing their session, the idea being that uh, you know, Appport should behave slightly differently if the session is being closed or not. Uh, it would invoke this though still with root privileges. And uh, so then you could abuse that by setting uh, the dbus session bus address environment variable so that uh, it would then connect to some other uh, you know, spoofed dbus server that you had then spawned. And you could then cause it to essentially read an arbitrary 16-byte uh, long file from the file system because, again, it's running as root. It can read that, and then it will sort of essentially echo that to your fake dbus server. So it could allow you to read this sort of arbitrary 16-byte long files off the file system. So that was fixed to just correctly drop privileges. Uh, there was also a time of check to time of use issue when handling crash dumps. Uh, so Appport, you know, when collecting this information, it would uh, look at the process ID, go and collect stuff for that. Uh, and then it would also go and collect other information. So in between, if the process ID got recycled, uh, then Appport could go and collect details for some other process that had the same PID that, you know, it started later. Uh, and so you could then say get a process that was owned by root and let's say in the second instance uh, that would then be have its details written into a crash report for say a user level process so then a standard user would be able to read that uh, that could then allow you to do things like bypass ASLR and that kind of thing uh, but uh, it was fixed just to basically check that the process start time when we then go did go to collect that information was at least newer than Appport's start time itself so the idea that you know a process runs it crashes then we spawn Appport uh, and so Appport will start later than the real process, but if you then go and re re recycle that PID to another process, it will have a later start time. So a pretty simple check. Uh, and the last uh, vulnerability fix for Appport was an unhandled exception when parsing the user's preferences configuration file. So that would then you know, cause a crash and denial of service. Uh, so thanks in particular to Mark Valore and our team for handling those. Mark also handled uh, some vulnerabilities in Whoopsie as well. So Whoopsie is the other component in the crash reporting um, scheme for Ubuntu. Uh, this takes the crash reports that are generated by Appport and uploads them to uh, the errors.ubuntu.com server. And so in this case, there were three vulnerabilities in Whoopsie as well that were discovered uh, affecting Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support. All three of these were from Seong Jun Kim. Uh, there would be a crash when trying to process a crafted crash file. So essentially you could have craft a 
you could craft the crash file so that it would uh, allocate you know a huge amount of memory uh this would then you know exceed the amount of memory that was available and you would crash whoopsie so uh, that was fixed just to basically do a check first to make sure that we don't try to ar uh, allocate arbitrary large amounts of uh, memory there was also an integer overflow in uh, the bson library that is packaged as part of whoopsie so instead of say uploading json to the server we upload uh, bson which is binary encoded json because uh, it's a lot smaller uh, so yeah, essentially because you're you know, parsing this sort of binary format and forming this binary format, uh, a bit like image handling and things, you know, we often get these kind of uh, vulnerabilities, particularly with integer overflows. So we're doing some kind of multiplication or the like um, that would then exceed the bounds of an unsigned 32-bit integer. So yeah, you could get it to uh, then allocate you know, a too small buffer for what is a very large amount of memory and you would write into that and then you would get a heap buffer overflow. Uh, that would cause likely a crash but potentially remote code execution if you can uh, you know craft memory in the right way however you're going to be executing as the whoopsie user which generally isn't very privileged on the system so not a super high priority issue there but uh, also fixed as well as a possible memory leak when parsing crash dumps so in this case you could get whoopsie to uh, exhaust a huge amount of memory and you'd be able to crash it as well so another denial of service issue against whoopsie fixed as well then we had an update for PPP. So this was one CVE that was fixed for Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support. This was an Ubuntu-specific patch. Um, so PPPD, the PPP daemon in Ubuntu is set UID root. Uh, and so part of making it, you know, be able to operate easily was it we had a patch in there that would have it helpfully uh, load the PPP generic module into the kernel when needed. Uh, but uh, again, this is running set UID root, so it runs as root, even though it could be run by a, a standard user. It wouldn't clear the mod probe options environment variable, so it spawns mod probe to load that module, uh, and then you could essentially make mod probe do other things, you know, and it's running as root. So you could make it do things like load other modules or read other files as root, uh, all kinds of stuff, really. And the interesting thing about this is this is a patch we've been carrying for quite a while for PPPD and it hasn't actually been needed uh, since the PPP generic module that it was trying to load has been built into the kernel since 2012. So it's not even a module that can be loaded anymore. So yeah, we were carrying this change uh, that then yeah could be exploitable, but now we've just removed that. So it doesn't try to helpfully load a module that doesn't exist anymore. We had an update for libvirt, uh, one CVE that was fixed for Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. Uh, this only affected this uh, more recent release. Uh, in this case, again, another Ubuntu-specific issue where uh, the packaging for it would configure uh, the libvirt socket to be created via systemd. So in the systemd unit, you specify what the permissions on that uh, socket file should be, and they were set to be world-writable. So that was fixed uh, to ensure that systemd actually specifies this to not be world writable and to specify you know, root as the owner and libvirt as the group as well, just to make sure it's properly locked down as well. Uh, so just a couple more to get through. So we also had an, up, uh, an Ubuntu security notice uh, for a regression in Grub2. So last week I talked a lot about uh, this Grub2 vulnerability uh, boot hole. In our update for this, uh, this did cause some issues on some legacy BIOS systems. And so in that case, uh, it co was caused by the fact that um, the Grub main sort of Grub core binary is written into the master boot record of your drive. And then the Grub modules then live on the file system within that. 
And if you particularly have multiple drives in your machine, uh, if Grub is not being installed into the one that's actually getting booted off of, uh, you could then get the Grub call that's in the master boot record being out of sync with the modules that are on disk. Uh, in this case, the update to Grub caused a change in ABI, and so the modules then wouldn't be able to be loaded and uh, your machine would not boot, sadly. Uh, again, this only affected a small number of users because in general, most people nowadays are using UEFI boot. And in that case, Grub is a monolithic binary and yeah, that, you know, that's not a problem in that case. Uh, but if you had manually configured uh, your Grub install, perhaps you were you know, doing a RAID setup and you'd manually run Grub install to a bunch of disks because you weren't sure which one was being used as the boot device, uh, this could have affected you. And it did affect, unfortunately, some particular cloud images due to the way that uh, cloud init was setting up the, the machines. Uh, so that has now been fixed just to not actually um, reinstall Grub to the master boot record when we do Grub updates, because in this case, uh, you know, these vulnerabilities only affected UEFI Secure Boot. They didn't affect legacy BIOS systems, uh, and in particular, legacy BIOS systems don't do any kind of verified boot anyway, and there are other ways of essentially doing arbitrary code execution in the boot path for legacy BIOS boot. Uh, so yeah, um, you know, they don't really affect it in that case. And finally, we had an update for uh, MySQL. Uh, we did uh, have an update recently for that that unfortunately caused a regression because upstream had introduced a change uh, in the compiler options that then could affect other libraries that were linking against the libmysql client library uh, due to the way it was handling TLS. Uh, and so that was uh, updated just to revert that change uh, so that you know, they operate correctly with MySQL client again. And that's it for this week in security updates. All right, so as I mentioned at the start, uh, Joe McManus, director of the Ubuntu security team, sat down with Dr. Levi Perigo from the University of Colorado this week uh, to talk about software-defined networking and network function virtualization uh, because Levi is really quite an expert in these areas. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Ubuntu Security Podcast, where we are talking with Dr. Levi Perigo, who is going to talk to us all about SDN and NFV. Hey, Levi. Hey, thanks for having me on. So Levi is a professor at the University of Colorado in the Department of Computer Science, where he teaches network uh, engineering. He's also on the IEEE NFV and SDN uh, program committee. He is also the founder and CEO of Raven Consulting. Um, and... Uh, as far as I know, I don't think there are many people in the industry or, frankly, the world who know more about SDN than NFV uh, and NFV than you, which is why we went straight to the source, because this is mostly, I think, security listeners on our on our podcast here. And we keep hearing about SDN and NFV, um, which is software-defined networking and network function virtualization. Um, and I don't think security people get deeply involved in that. And I really wanted to sort of get a maybe get a from you, sort of what is SDN and NFV, and then kind of walk through some, some more stuff with it. So with that, Levi, what, what is, in a nutshell, what's SDN and NFV? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is a very, very popular topic. And right now, they're kind of, you know, important buzzwords. But what are they? What do they do? And, and more importantly, what do they do for security? And I'll be happy to go in depth on that. But, you know, right now, security is either terrible for SDN NFV <laughs> or it is perfect. And hopefully in the in the near near future, the perfect solution for security is gonna be SDN NFV. So let me just give you a quick overview. So NFV, like Joe said, is a network functions virtualization. 
And within that, you have VNFs, so virtual um, VNF, virtual network function. So any kind of physical function like a firewall, a router, a VoIP box, um, when we virtualize those, then that becomes, you know, a virtual network function, which is part of NFV. And for SDN, that can mean so many different things, whether that is to an industry or for open source. Um, but the general kind of high level SDN is having plane separation. So separating the control from the data plane, having a simple device that we can use to control and manipulate and forward the traffic, having centralized control. So having kind of a quote, centralized brain and what that that with sdn that often gets a a bad rap especially in the security communities because it says oh there's a centralized control well if i compromise that centralized control then i can control the entire network well really what that centralized control means is it's you know logically centralized but physically distributed so it makes much more sense security-wise um, if it's logically centralized and physically distributed. Um, but kind of the last trait here on uh, the kind of basics of open SDN is plain separation, simple device, centralized control, um, as well as open source or openness, um, which I think is a critical part of, of SDN. So, Joe, there's a high-level overview of what we're talking about when we look at um, NFE as well as SDN. So real quick there, I think you kind of hit the central point as far as I'm concerned with how security people have approached this uh, SDN, uh, which is that security people understand, they understand that Cisco ASA, they understand the firewall, and now you're abstracting that to the software layer. So now it's no longer, hey, can you show me the, um, the console of your, of your Cisco? Can you, um, can you load these IDS rules in your, in your snort box? It's somewhat abstracted from that. And I think that's where there's a lot of I'll say lack of understanding. So there's some hand waving going on when people are looking at SDN security. So I'm glad we've got you here. So, so, you, so I, as this example set up, I could get a you know a sort of a, a white a commodity piece of hardware with multiple NICs in it. Set that up to be my my uh, backplane, my multiple VLANs. Um, everything could be running through there with software defined networking. Um, and I can make changes on the fly that aren't going to require me moving physical cables and things like that, right? Absolutely. And so that comes down to kind of the orchestration and automation and network programmability. So those are both, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword, like you said. It's a difficult in the sense of I can't point to my Cisco ASA firewall that is in building six, rack number 20, slot number six, right? So I can't definitely point to that as the problem because it's not necessarily a physical box anymore. However, the beauty of that is I can move that firewall wherever I want. I can spin up a new one whenever I want. And with these VNFs, right, these virtual network functions, such as a firewall, right, not only can I move it around wherever I want for the best location, whether that is I can put it on the server with the most CPU and RAM, but I can also measure things like delay and latency and place my firewall in the most applicable spot in the network for delay. Um, and now that we move these VNFs to virtual machines and even containers, you know, I can spin up a new firewall container in microseconds, 
Right. So I recently worked with a, a major internet service provider here in the Boulder, Denver area. And their thought on firewall insecurity is, listen, my firewall is a, is a container and I have more CPU and RAM than you do. So when you try and attack me, I'm just going to spin up another firewall and another firewall and another firewall. Eventually, my compute is going to be able to solve the problem. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, but I think the benefits of being able to do everything so fast and orchestrate it and place it wherever you want in the network adds so many more benefits. Yeah, that's a really great example. So if you think of the typical, I'll say DDoS we're seeing now, it's large swaths of IoT devices that are getting turned into a botnet to attack something. And while there is power in those bots, they're, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you always hear me say they're getting more and more powerful, more and more compute. But the compute in 100,000, I don't know, 32 um, megahertz uh, 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 IoT devices really isn't comparable to an entire data center full of of, of, of blade servers. So that's a that's a really, I think, a, a good example of how NFE can help out with, with security. Now, when when I used to do a lot of, um, I'll say a lot more assessments and going in to help companies do their do their security model, I would find out that the there was a lack of understanding of how actual networking worked. So it kind of like, well, the network people, they've given us a VLAN, but they didn't put an ACL in. So, that, so okay, you've got a VLAN, but there's no security built around that. Um, what you're seeing with people doing um, SDN, is it that they understand more of the whole picture of security? I mean, you said earlier that it's either done really well or done poorly. Is it because they don't understand what they're doing? You're getting, well, I just deployed this and now it works. So I don't want to touch it. Or I really understand this and I can apply all of my security and really isolate and compartmentalize my data. Yeah, absolutely. So I see kind of two cases here. The people that understand kind of networks and security holistically, whether that is, you know, a DevOps model where we have security and network engineers and programmers all working together, that works extremely well, right? If you have the people that know networks, they know virtualization, then you have the security team and the software team that can put all this together. The power of SDN and NFE together is limitless because, you know, you have an end-to-end model, right? You talked about the the DOS or the DDOS, right? Well, now if I can add, you know, open source bare metal boxes on the edge of my network that can capture these attacks in real time in hardware, you know, then I can program something to alleviate that nearly immediately because I can do it at hardware speed or I can detect a problem and then send it throughout my entire network to alleviate it at hardware at the edge of my network. So, there's so many beautiful things about it. However, the majority, I think, are not on this, this scale right now. It's almost the opposite of, of what you mentioned. All right, I know some networks. I know some basic security. Now, let me see if I can get this whole SDN thing up and working. Now, now, now don't add security yet because I just got to get it working first. And then by then they figure, oh, now don't touch it because it's working. So then they, they don't add security until the very end. And, and obviously that's just a terrible mm-hmm. practice. But if but one of the beauties of SDN is that it's it, there's just configuration files, you know, just just tar up the directory, make your changes and see if they work. And if they don't, you know, just untar yourself, put it back in and keep making incremental changes. I mean, you can put all your I've, I've seen people putting all of their SDN configs into their Git repo. I mean, you can 
You can, there's a lot of ways you can do incremental changes and not have that, well, now I need to run down to the data center and move some cables around because my, my firewall is now in the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Doing some kind of CI, CD and change management is, is perfect for this, right? You just flows in with everything else and, you know, let's add this new change and it could make everything better. We can press this button. It's orchestrated, it's automated, and it's throughout the entire network, right? Not just the core or the data center or the edge. You can use this to do the entire network. So it's, it makes, it makes everything so much more fast, so much more efficient and overall a kind of a centralized global security policy. That is that is really cool. Now, are you seeing people doing this mostly in things like um, OpenRayu and OpenFlow, or, or is it more they're going to the vendors and doing the vendors um, uh, version of these open source projects? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, because there's there's so many different models, right? You know, you have the traditional kind of big box people that have used the vendors for a long time. And so they're moving to their their kind of quote SDN or NFE solution. Um, you know, I've used vendor X for so long. Well, now let me move to theirs. Um, but then I think the majority are using the open source model. So whether that is kind of bare metal edge boxes with, you know, Linux servers in the core, um, the majority are using that. And, and as you are probably more aware than anyone else that I know, and very few people in the world, is this open source security model is is kind of can be a huge vulnerability of okay well now there's a security vulnerability i need to patch that and send it throughout my network but the beauty of that is it's done so much faster than in a traditional vendor environment you know if i have vendor x for all my edge boxes well if there's a problem there i mean a new update in that firmware that software could take you know a very long time whereas you know people like you in the open source community are turning these vulnerabilities around so quickly. Um, so to answer this, I, I think that the wide variety of this is using um, traditional kind of open source models, whether that's an SDN controller, whether it's an open source firewall, and the protocols vary, right? So for SDN, does that mean I'm using traditional, the OpenFlow protocol? Or am I using a more new P4 protocol? Or am I just using simple network programmability with SSH access and um, automating things that way? So there's a there's a big variety as always, but right now it's it's mostly the open source kind of paradigm that people are using. Cool. So um, I know you're always working on something pretty cutting edge in this space. So what what, what research are you doing right now? So I got a couple that we're kind of finished or are right in the middle of. Um, so on the NFV side and on the SDN side. So in the NFV side, one of my former students, uh, Dr. Devong Gadia, um, we just finished doing the NFV side. And what we developed was a decision tree algorithm for VNF placements. So we created some SDN controllers and a SIP server in container form. And we used Kubernetes um, to place these, but by default, you know, where do you place this VNF? You know, whether it's a firewall or a SIP server, whatever it is. Well, if we use something like Kubernetes, it's going to place it on the best server, right? Whether that is the most um, RAM utilization or the best CPU utilization, it's going to place that on, you know, if there's three servers, it's going to place that there. So, but what about network? It doesn't 
keep in mind that, okay, if I need to access my SIP server, well, I actually need it to have kind of a low SIP latency to that server. Well, if you use traditional Kubernetes, you know, it has a one in three chance or a 33% chance of placing that on the worst bandwidth for SIP. So what we developed was a, an algorithm that keeps latency and delay on top of CPU and utilization. So not only do we place it on the best um, server available, but also on the best network um, delay latency server as well. So we added that to Kubernetes. So that was, again, making it more efficient to place a VNF in a container form on not only the best server available, but also the best latency. Um, then one other thing that we're working on, which I'm really, really passionate about, is more on the SDN front. And that's with my current PhD student, Rahil Ganbutra. And what we're working on is called energy efficiency for network devices. So I'm sure a lot of people are aware of, you know, computer energy proportionality, right? My computer goes to sleep. I have high efficiency servers. But where is that for networking gear? So we've been able to use some SNMP MIBs as well as some JSON and Yang models to capture devices power that they're utilizing at any given time. And we can use that to send that via SNMP or JSON or NetComp through various different versions to kind of a central repo. So we know what each of our boxes are doing in real time and how much power they're converting. And we've created, we've called a green power forwarding algorithm with SDN using OpenFlow as well as P4. And what that can do is we can, we can create a dial that says, all right, I want my network to work as energy efficient as possible. Therefore, if I want, I can send it to switch number one, which goes to router number two, then to router number three, because these are the most energy efficient boxes in our network. They can have the best power resiliency as well as the best throughput. Or I can work in the opposite form of, I just need the highest throughput available. I don't care how much energy it saves. So I can go much more in detail on this, but one thing that's really important in this is think of it from a security perspective, right? If there's a natural disaster, I can turn this dial and say, all right, listen, power is really important right now. I need to save, because we may be all on battery backup at this mm -hmm. point, right? So I can turn this dial and say, I need everything to work as efficient as possible. So take the path between A and B that is the most energy efficient. Right? So it saves the most power. It still has a good throughput. Um, but I think that's really important. So anyway, um, energy proportionality for network devices is, is something that I'm working on. And, and I think it has a really big future. That is awesome. Really interesting work you're doing, Levi. And um, Levi, thank you so much for, um, uh, for being on the podcast this week. Um, I think you also have some exciting news about some stuff that's happening in the uh, graduate program at CU. So maybe we can have you back on when you're ready to talk about that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Like I said, SDN, NFV, anything network engineering, I'm super passionate about. So uh, I just am so happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. And I just want to say a big thanks again to uh, Levi and Joe for that interview. Uh, that was some great listening. All right. And that's it for this week's episode. As usual, if you would like to get in contact with this security team, you can reach us at securityubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on irc.freenode.net. Uh, there is the security section on discourse.ubuntu.com if you want to start a discussion with us there too. And finally, we are at ubuntu underscore sec on Twitter if Twitter is more your thing. 
Okay, so thanks everyone for listening again for another week. It's been great doing this all again for you. Remember, until next time, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.